Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back to Cute Furry and In Your Roof, part two. Tony, how often do you think you see skunks around in West Philly? In West Philly? Yeah. I haven't seen, I don't think I've ever seen one in West Philly. They're really common in Northeast Philly. Bull mentioned one behind the, the, um, the co-op ones, and I swear I've smelled them on our block once or twice. But the complication is Philadelphia's liberalized regulations around or liberalized enforcement of marijuana laws. So now sometimes you think you're smelling skunk, <laughs> and you're not. It's a dank nose. <laughs> I'm serious, though. Like, I'll be riding my bike home, I'm like, is that a skunk? I'm like, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> is that a skunk? <laughs> no, no, it isn't. That's just the dude parked in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but this time, like, I was like, no, that is definitely a skunk. Right. Um, so I think they walk around every now and then. Um, so we're going to hear Anna Snyder talking about her research into Grand Forks, North Dakota. This is a skunk project funded partly by the USDA Wildlife Services related to rabies vector research, because skunks can be a rabies vector. And this is sort of a neat look at sort of skunks living in called wastelands, industrial spaces, um, and sometimes behind people's houses in Grand Forks, North Dakota. So my name is Anna Schneider. I'm a first-year graduate student at the University of North Dakota, um, and my research is with urban skunks. I am working with uh, Dr. Jason Belanger. So striped skunks are a primary rabies vector in the Midwestern states and into the northern Great Plains. And they're also generalists that can thrive in urban environments. So um, they can go from, you know, rural to urban and cross that interface. Um, but increased interactions with people, pets, and other urban wildlife uh, enhances potential for rabies transmission, uh, which also drives the need for urban wildlife management studies. Uh, a quick question to get out of the way before we get much further, but have you been sprayed yet? No, I have not. <laughs> I have not been sprayed yet. They mostly, um, if they do spray, they will spray the trap. Um, but I have not been sprayed yet, and I caught uh, 86 skunks this summer. Um, most of them were either kits or uh, recaptures, but I caught caught and collared 15 adults. How aware are the people of Grand Fork of the skunks around them? Um, so most of my skunks are in industrial areas where... They, it, there's no one there at night. You know, they're there from nine to five or eight to five p.m. and then they leave, and they're and they're not there on the weekends. Um, and most of the time, um, I mean, they they see the kits running around um, during the daylight uh, or dusk and dawn. Um, but a lot of times, people are pretty shocked to see that um, I've, I've caught a skunk in their backyard. Basically, definitely, um, the the kits are they're the babies are a lot more active uh, during the daytime. So the, the the reason for that is when the mo the mom is active at night when she's nursing them. So then when she comes back, then they're awake and they're feeding during the day. So they're on a diurnal schedule while their mom is on a nocturnal schedule. And when uh, they first emerge from the den, they keep on that schedule until they learn, they quickly learn that they need to go nocturnal again. That's why uh, in, in like midsummer, that's why a lot of people are seeing skunks out. Uh, and that's the, those are the kits, the babies. What is the life of an urban skunk like? 
So they can live um, in a, a variety of different places. Usually they like to be um, – most of mine are, like I said, in industrial areas, but they like eating insects, grasshoppers. They'll feed on garbage. So there's a waste management plant just north of town, and there's a lot of skunks that love, absolutely love to stay in there. Um, but they'll also eat cat food, dog food. Um, so if people have, you know, bowls of cat food out on their porches at night, you will probably see a skunk there. Um, but uh, the people around Grand Forks, especially in the areas where my skunks are, they don't really leave out food. Um, but it's it's mostly insects, basically any trash they can find, sometimes small mammals as well, so little mice. They'll eat those as well. I found um, a, a couple different dens. Uh, throughout my study, and one of them is actually under an overpass of a highway. Um, so the highway goes over a fairly busy road just on the north side of town, um, and there's a skunk den just underneath it, under the, the cement slabs. I've found under a large pile of wood, so a bunch of old two-by-fours just stacked on top of one another. I had three collared skunks under in that same uh, den and at least two others. I set up some trail cameras at the entrances um, and so I could see which skunks were coming in and out. So there were at least five skunks in that one den. Um, and wow. then another den in a, more of an industrial part of town. It was kind of under a, a dock that's usually supposed to, you know, go in water, but they kind of, they had it on land for some reason. Um, it was just kind of off to the side. I had two collared skunks living in there. There were at least three uncollared skunks, and there was actually a kitten, a domestic kitten, that was denning with them. So huh. that was, yeah. When I was setting up the trail camera one day, um, the, the kitten, I heard meowing from inside the den, and uh, all of a sudden this kitten pops out and starts, you know, sitting on my lap and kneading on me, and I'm 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 a little freaked out because, you know, it, it's denning with skunks. Who knows what kind of diseases or parasites it could have. Um, so I, I ended up, I, I left it for a few days. I came back and I checked the trail camera photos and there were no other cats to be seen in that area. It was just the skunks and the kitten. Um, and, and the kitten came back out and, and bothered me. Uh, so and it, it was friendly enough. So I took it to the Humane Society and it got adopted within probably two weeks. Uh, to a, a nice family. So it was a happy ending for that little kitten. This is like straight out of Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I always thought that the skunks were babysitting the kittens. During the trapping season, I caught a bunch of raccoons as well. Surprisingly, I'd rather deal with the skunks than the raccoons. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're I'm not surprised, but explain why. <laughs> Um, they uh, have a meaner temperament. They'll growl at you. They'll snarl at you. I've never had a skunk snarl at me, um, never make any kind of aggression, um, maybe except the kits when they're, um, they, they like pounce at me almost. I've had feral cats on trail cameras. Nor there's Norway rats around here, but they're not really um, meso predators. I'm trying to think. There's uh, a foxes as well. I haven't seen any foxes yet, but I've heard reports of a gray fox. There's kind of a 
a little creek that runs through campus, and there's some houses around it, and I've heard reports of a gray fox in that area. So I haven't seen it yet, but I'm curious. I want to set up some trail cameras in that area and see if I can catch it. What is the, the family friend reaction when you tell them that you're you're studying skunk in a city? <laughs> I get I get uh, so many surprise reactions. Most people, the first words out of their mouth are skunks. Why skunks? <laughs> so, but my my family um, my family is really pretty proud of me. Um, my my parents actually came to visit me this past summer and helped me trap them. Reminds me of a story. I, I saw a skunk when I, I was one of my my second job. Maybe I worked at a teller research place. I was sixteen, which is so crazy. A sixteen year old should be calling you up doing a survey. <laughs> and there was a skunk in the parking lot, and it was like doing like somersaults. And someone got in a car and ran it over. Well, full grown or a kit? Full grown. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got you there. Yeah. Yeah. Walk around people doing somersaults? No, no, no. I, I got you now. <laughs> I, got you. I, I caught up with it. I was thinking of some cute little baby skunk, like, playing around yeah. outside, which they do. So, the last thing is, I've been... Palm civets had come up, when we were talking to the guy about raccoon dogs in Japan, I researched them and found out they were actually introduced to Japan. They're native to Singapore. And so then, I saw somebody, something posted about research into otters in Singapore. Yes. Um, and I asked about palm civets, and one of the grad students involved with this group was researching palm civets. Palm civets, in case you're wondering, are the same animal that gives us kopi luwak coffee. The, the original idea was that palm civets would live in coffee plantations, would eat some of the coffee berries, poop it out, and then someone thought, hey, why don't we make this, the palm civet poop into coffee? Because part of the coffee making process is fermenting it, right. and this is apparently somewhat fermented in the gut of the mm. palm civet, it became a delicacy. And so now, unfortunately, they keep them in like sort of batteries of cages, just feed them tons of coffee, oh, right, okay. collect the poop, and it's become a sort of factory farming thing. So are they sort of it's... omnivorous, or they're okay. they are the, they're sort of as far as I can tell, regionally the closest thing to a raccoon they got. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I mean they're. Maybe even more arboreal than raccoons, but they're arboreal, omnivorous animals that'll live in your roof. Right. Um, she talks about how they, how, how people, a lot of people do like them, other people get sick of them peeing and pooping on your roof. Right. Um, something Jeff Falks mentioned about the, the Australian possums, how frustration with them is them like being in your roof or in right. your attic and right. peeing and pooping in your attic. Right. Same thing with that raccoon. Yes. Hi everyone, my name is Wei Ting. And I'm part of the National University of Singapore Civet Research Team. I first started my research on common palm civets in 2009. Uh, and this was part of, of my honours thesis, where I was looking at the distribution, diet, and the residence, residences' perception of civets in an urban estate in Singapore. Uh, when I describe the common palm civet to people, uh, I typically typically say that the animal is a small to medium-sized mammal. Uh, the characteristic feature is its black mask, facial mask over its eyes, uh, and that reminds me very much of a superhero at night where they wear a black mask. They are generally dark grey and uh, in colour and with uh, sometimes with a tinge of darkish kind of fur coat. And they have a really very uh, a really long tail. 
people might mistake them to be cats, uh, but a quick way to tell them apart is to look at its tail. So a domestic cat's tail is often shorter than its body, but a civet's tail is equally as long as its body. Uh, and also not to forget, the civet are, uh, tend to be a much better climber than most of the domestic cats that we see. So how do you spot civets? Civets are usually quite quiet. Uh, they move around uh, at night and they're mainly nocturnal animals. Uh, but if you're lucky, they are a little bit active before dusk and after dawn. Uh, but the best way to really spot and a civet is to actually uh, spot them by their eye shine. Uh, that means you have to look, uh, take out a, a torch to shine around uh, in the near your estate at night, and then they can be detected by the uh, eye shine that's reflected from the light. Uh, sometimes, if they are not too stealthy, they do make some rustling noise. Uh, and another way to spot civet is actually by their smell. So civets have a, a scent. Uh, they actually do send mark to communicate with other civets in the area. And their scent is actually very similar to uh, a, a plant, a plant called a pandan. Uh, this pandan plant is actually used in many Southeast Asian cooking uh, and baking dishes. Uh, so the fragrance is very, very similar to uh, a civet. So the, uh, why the civet is an animal that you can see in urban Singapore, it's because that we don't really have that many large predators present uh, here in Singapore. Most of them are already extinct. Uh, so for adult civets, their only predators in Singapore is the reticulated python. Unlike in other countries, uh, there, are, there are actually other predators uh, such as the fishing cat in Sri Lanka, they actually do hide out in the rooftops to hunt for these civets. The civets diet, uh, it's a mixture of fruits and animals, so they're omnivorous, uh, but predominantly fruits. Uh, so they eat the fruits that are grown in home gardens, and also um, plants that are planted along the roadside or in little forest patches. Uh, so from the research that we've done so far since 2009, uh, we have a couple of students studied, uh, who studied the diet of wild civets and forest civets. So we realized from the research that, that uh, some, seed, or some, some seeds actually germinate faster after they've gone through uh, the civet's digestive system. Uh, and because of this result, we realised that the civets can actually play an important role in the ecosystem as a uh, seed dispersal. Uh, they have a large gape, so they can eat large fruits, and they have a fondness for sweet fruits, and their high mobility enables them to play this role quite well. Um, and they are able to disperse seeds in many degraded forest patches in an urban setting. So typically, civets are solitary in nature. Usually you just see one individual, uh, and you only see more than one individual uh, when there's a mating pair. 
or if there is a family group around, so a mom bringing around her young, uh, can sometimes can sometimes be seen. Civets are quite adaptable to city life uh, here in Singapore and also in their natural distribution. They hide in roof attics. Um, they also make use of man-made connectors between areas such as telephone cables and dry waterways. Uh, and all these man-made uh, structures can actually help them to move between habitats uh, at night. And so they're not usually detected by humans that easily. Uh, and the main difference that we think between urban civets and their forest counterparts is their behaviour towards people. Urban civets tend to be more bold. Uh, some of them will actually allow you to come quite close before they uh, eventually move away. Uh, but the story is totally different in the forest. Usually once they are spotted by us, um, by the eye shine, they would usually move away quite quickly uh, into the forest cover and then very soon we can't see them anymore. So as a urban wildlife in Singapore, um, naturally they do interact with people, uh, especially with house owners uh, that have civets in their roof spaces. Uh, just like any other urban wildlife, there are some people who really love having civets around, while there are others who simply just can't stand uh, a civet in their vicinity. So pe for people who dislike having civets around, um, usually there are quite a few reasons. Some people are just afraid of the noise that they make while walking around the rooftop at night. Uh, it can be quite noisy, um, especially if they are juveniles and they are playing around, jumping around on the rooftop at night. Uh, there are other people who are irritated that uh, the civets come by to help themselves to a fruit buffet uh, in the trees that they grow in their gardens. Yeah, they really love their, some of them really love the tropical fruits that are grown in the home gardens. Uh, and often, and some, or, or and sometimes, civets uh, also treat certain rooftops as their bathrooms. Uh, and people are also perturbed by the scats that they find on their rooftop. Uh, for people who love civets, um, it's the other end of the spectrum. They are always really thrilled to observe the civets in close proximity. Uh, and we have a Facebook page that we encourage people to send us records of uh, the civets, either in the wild or in their home environment. And they sometimes do send us really nice photographs or videos of the civets in their homes. And uh, there was one time we even had an elderly couple uh, who, had, who really wanted to attract the civets to their home. And they even asked us for advice as to what to plant in their home garden such that the civets would naturally be attracted to come to their home. And this was very encouraging for us to hear especially sometimes we hear uh, or we uh, come or encounter a lot of complaints, um, but we hope that more people would uh, take to understand the biology of the civets and uh, appreciate having them around. So over the past eight years uh, of research, um, we know that despite urbanization, 
Um, there are some animal species that have persisted or have even adapted to city living. And as many cities are actually ramping up their greening efforts, there would uh, definitely be an increased chance of wildlife and human beings being in close proximity. So I really hope that the research that we do, be it in the lab or in the field, can actually translate into practical means to help uh, Singaporeans uh, and other city dwellers learn how to behave around urban wildlife and possibly learn how to appreciate and coexist with some of the wildlife that we have. Thank you. A lot of us, I mean, us meeting people in the room, not necessarily everybody lives in the city. Right. Your listeners, the podcast certainly, are into urban wildlife. We like celebrate urban wildlife. I like to walk out of my house and see something cool flying by or walking by. Yeah. But then what are the boundaries when that gets annoying? Like, it's one thing I love squirrels, but now I've got some squirrels living in the roof of our porch. Right. Um, and on Saturday, I'm going to get a ladder and try to, like, denest them. I don't know what to call it. Like, right. just rip the nest out. Yeah. Because there's a limit. And so, like, yeah, you were talking just now about, like, the question of, is if we green the city, like, we're inviting more wildlife in. That's right. What and are the consequences of that? Yeah, what are the consequences? So do you, do you sort of train people, teach people, ask people to become more tolerant of this kind of, you know, invasion of animals of your home? Yeah. Um, do you rethink what it means to, what the home means, right? As a yeah. space that is um, built for humans, but but might contain certain animals? Yeah. We have variable boundaries in this, in the sense that, like, I'm perfectly fine with house centipedes. Right. And people but, I know... But other people freak out about spiders, right? Yeah. Or... Yeah. or um, or raccoons, right? Right. So I, yeah. I've decided know. that my right. house can be shared with house and peas. Right. Yeah. People yeah. in that part of the world too have like homes where like they're they're a lot more open, you know. Before. In Singapore, like big city, or yeah, yeah. So some, I mean, that's what Singapore, but like, well, once you get out of like the main downtown area, I'm, I'm trying to remember specifically Singapore, but other house, other places I've seen in in Southeast Asia where like the you know the homes a lot more open floor plan, and they have like they might have a. Before, you know, these are designed before air conditioning. So yeah, and they might have, have a. Yeah. I remember right. one house I was in in Borneo, but I was in a city in Borneo. They had like planted like wall. It was like open, like courtyard. It was open to to the sky, and there was like a pond. But it was like like the rooms around it were kind of open to it. Yeah. You know, so like yeah, you can clearly kind of you know things can definitely come in there. You know, and like being like you know maybe the doors to your. The kitchen or like your rooms would be closed, but that you know certainly someone can come down there and hang right. out right in your space. So, possums in Australia sort of um, I think fascinate you know Australians in the same way that raccoons and squirrels and maybe to some extent red fox in some parts of the country and cities. Um, and I think certainly in Europe, sort of fascinate us, right? Because they sort of they become what sort of Emma Power in her dissertation on border processes and homemaking encounters with possums in suburban Australia homes uh, has sort of called, you know, border processes, sort of animals that straddle the border between sort of outside and inside. And what do people think when they decide to move inside to some extent, right? Yeah. Part-time or they sort of end up nesting in your attic or 
you know, helping themselves to your cat food or yeah. or those sorts of interactions. I mean, and there is a downside, right? The, the, the urine, the feces, the, the noise at night. Um, I mean, ripped up insulation. Right. I mean, yeah. those are, you know, potentially economically costly, yeah. totally annoying, smelly, um, and maybe, you know, understandably not always um, ideal. So she looked at sort of homemaking with animals, right? So part of her work is more um, with domestic pets, dogs and pet keeping and, um, you know, this sort of work on, um, you know, renting with pets and what does that mean and how does that sort of affect who gets to rent and who is rented to, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, But she's done a little bit of stuff about wildlife, particularly around the possums. And she's a sort of a fascinating comparison between the possums, which are, you know, the majority of people sort of like them. Yeah, they're cute. They're cute. They're native animals. They're very much constructed as native animals by sort of wildlife authorities. In, uh, in you South- say constructed, you're using the... Well, constructed in, in the sense... Yeah, framed, thing. constructed, promoted as a species right. worth sort of protecting, preserving, sort yeah. of, you know, um, uh, you know, a native Australian animal as opposed to sort of feral cats, yeah. which is rabbits, or, you know, which yeah. is sort of an issue. But also an animal whose range is sort of shrunk, right? Sort of, they're, they're, in fact, they're now doing no, better, they are doing better in cities exactly, than they are yeah. in sort of the countryside. Uh, so, so people are sort of potentially inclined... Um, you know, to help these animals and to tolerate them. And she draws sort of a really interesting contrast between the, uh, the possums. And she says that um, participants in the study that she interviewed uh, viewed possums as examples of healthy nature and, will- and wildness in the home because of their legal and popular construction as native animals and their association with bushland. They were viewed this way even when they were known to inhabit urban spaces. By contrast... The unanimous association of rats with humans, yeah. the city, and waste, especially sewers, drains, gutters, and so forth, saw rats constructed as unhealthy and disease-carrying. They were particularly associated with germs and the plague. Possibly doing a little <laughs> bit of a disservice to rats, and most rats, right? Um, I mean, in terms of sort of annoyance, and, you know, it's not clear that rats in your attic would be more or less annoying than... Um, possums, but uh, yeah, they got a point with the you know plague, similar, yeah. very similar. Very, well, I mean, it's not like they're sort of plague is a huge issue in uh, in our world today. But I think a very sort of similar construction that we we find here, right, around yeah. rats, and as opposed to although it seems like raccoons are not as positively viewed here. It's as a they, mix. It's, this it's, definitely, it's definitely very polarizing. It's it's like but a it, litmus test for how you view nature, and yes, in a lot of ways, I think so. Yeah. But it also sort of skews, I mean, it sort of, it also seems to correlate, though, with sort of to what extent, like, you know, it, you know, what sort of state of repair is your home in? Would a raccoon be able to move in there in the first place? I mean, it's often associated with sort of, you know, we have this old housing stock in the city and some poverty and people really aren't able to invest in there. But it makes me think also of how, and it's, and this is the, the cultural divide that I'm I don't know the right way to phrase it, because I was going to say it was racial, it's sort of like white people versus, it's not white people versus black people. It's like, yeah. I was thinking also of like, the classic examples, like the South Philly, blue collar neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. It's more like, I don't know, people who are coming from a suburban background and moving into the city versus like your older residents who, like, you know, you hear stories from people like in South Philly want trees planted because it'll bring too many. Yeah. Like well, it's work, they right? rats, rats, work, leaves. Yeah, and then like, yeah. just but just like this is not a place for animals at all. Right. This is yeah. This is a, this is for us and our miniature. I don't know our miniature poodles. Um, and then like this. Sorry, <laughs> not to cast a stereotype about. No. <laughs> but 
Um, I feel like something I've encountered something similar in West Philly also, and it's it's something that like. I'm a nature lover, you know, I come from the suburbs where, like, what's the big deal if you have a deer in your backyard? Like, as long as it doesn't crash through your car windshield, it's okay. Yeah. You know, and, like, whereas here, like, if there are raccoons around, they are invaders. Like, <laughs> yes. The other thing about raccoons is they also, in popular culture, are kind of like this, like, oh, you mischievous, cute thing, you know, that's, like, right in my campsite, or, like, you know, like... In like in like movies, it'll be like you know, it's like your little kid breaking into the cookie jar. Like, yeah, yeah. And a little bit of that too, like yeah. you know, like some comic relief, and you know, lots of them in movies and things, you know, and people do make pets out of them. People who feed them. That's like a bad idea. Yeah, we're too smart to have as pets. Well, I mean, I guess the, the possums are. Uh, I mean, the Australian possums are a little bit too small, right? They're not quite as big or destructive as raccoons. Yeah, there's such a variety of them right. in Australia, you know? He was saying the northern, up in the, the north, was the northern part of the, the large, there's a... Well, he said the, the larger range. ones were sort of four kilos, yeah. which, which is probably like a starting point for a respectable raccoon, right? Yeah, I was going to say, it's like a cat. Yeah. How much? Well, your cats are not good for raccoons. No, raccoons are. <laughs> your right. cats are the size of raccoons. Well, no, I mean raccoons, <laughs> raccoons are sort of fifteen to twenty-five pounds. Yeah, they're they're, they're bigger animals. Yeah. Yeah. or yeah. even bigger. Some of the bigger males can get pretty big. What do you, do you think? There's something about how they parallel, or how they like like people say like we connect with cats especially because they are like babies or small children in a lot of ways. Like they're large eyes. Yeah. Um, sort of a size that you can hold. Right. And. And sort of warm something to stumble with, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like the when you have something like a, I mean, less so a possum, but like a raccoon or a civet. I mean, civets are really cute looking animals. Um, yeah. And the Australian possums, even skunks, just looking at them, oh, yeah. like they're they're like skunks are adorable. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So like they're 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 all animals that like that sort of overlap with our pets in like. And features that might sort of no, I think so. Yeah, hit the pet buttons in our brains. You know? right. The only problem with the skunks though is when your cat, your black cat, accidentally gets white paint on it, and then <laughs> the skunk falls in love with it. <laughs> Anna, did you hear? So in the interview with Anna, she was talking about like this is one of the funny things she talked about is like finding a kitten living with like a group of skunks. Yeah, it's <laughs> in den, right? Right. Yeah, that's like that's like adopted by like a paperless cute like yeah. Like commune, you know, like <laughs> you're right. Like no one's talking about if we green the city and make it friendlier for wild, like or as we make it less likely to incur Clean Water Act violations for the right. city, which is, which is really what's driving it. Obviously, <laughs> like no one invests millions and millions of dollars right. just, just for the 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 to have more swallows zipping around the air. No, 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 no. Um, That we're going to end up with a, a more Hope I would think a more animal-rich city. Yeah, it seems inevitable, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't I'm looking forward to it, but you yeah. know, I don't know if everybody is. Yeah, I'm sure Tony's looking forward to it. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, I think with that, let's uh, we'll start winding up. You can always reach us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail You can tweet at us at wildlifecast. We read a couple comments. We like hearing comments, and like, I've got another. I think what we're going to do next is we're going to do another little bonus episode where actually a listener suggested, and I said go for it, like actually interviewed an urban wildlife, or urban wildlife, but also sort of like a venomous snake human conflict mitigation or conflict reduction expert in Arizona. And I'm going to edit that and post it up as an episode. So like between Rise stuff today and 
you got ideas, shoot them at us. The nice thing about a podcast is it's pretty cheap and easy to post something up there if, if we get it. <laughs> yeah, and if and a lot of our Twitter followers are researchers themselves. Yep. And if you're doing urban wildlife stuff, we'd interview you. Yep. You know, like, let us know. Um, we got sort of another bonus episode coming up. We are going to, I think we're going to get Robin back. Because I recorded an interview with a guy at the at Philadelphia's new freshwater mussel hatchery at the Waterworks, and we're going to talk freshwater mussels because Robin is a mussel fanatic. I don't know if he loves mussels though. I was hanging out with Robin yesterday. Well, there you go. Kayaking on the Schuylkill. Oh, you did your birding from the Schuylkill mm-hmm. thing. How'd it go? It was good. It was hard to see a lot of stuff, even from the kayak. You know. Yeah. I need to. We need to go at a time when there's like low tide so we can get some shorebirds. Yeah, you know, but it's harder to schedule like low tide and when people can go and you know. No, I know that I've tried to schedule myself for low tide experiences there to try to catch turtles. Um, I, I someday I want to try to find that alligator snapping turtle again. I look in the same spot, you know. Right. But one thing when you're out there, something I've started to notice is like the tidal behavior of rats. Hmm. More than once I've been out there at low tide and seen rats like. I guess foraging yeah. on the, the exposed mud and right. I would say mud and brick, but really, because like when you're looking at the most of the school kill is, is the term I learned bulwarked, mm. so it's like built up so it's vertical surfaces, right. but you have areas where essentially mud flats or beaches have formed. Yes, and so you know if you're on like the California coast or somewhere you might have like natural rocks right. as cobble on beaches. In the Schuylkill, it's broken up brick. That's right. So you have these, like, cobble brick beaches. And, like, on low tide, the rats come out and right. sort of sniff around forage in the mud. And at first mm-hmm. I thought it was, like, because you usually see a rat out during the daytime, something's wrong with the rat. Or right. it's, like, the, the bottom of the hierarchy rat that got booted out. Yeah. But, no, I think they're out there just, like, foraging. Yeah. So it's, like, a, a weird, I don't know what to call it, like, a weird urban, urban wildlife phenomenon. Yeah. I don't know. Thanks, guys. Till next time. Yeah, cheers.